It's great to be back. We had a fun Wednesday last week. Beth and I, I think, I was trying to think what we actually did. I think we had a date night, which was kind of weird because we don't get a lot of downtime like that, just the two of us. But uh, Jesse had Gigi and Doc to entertain for hours upon hours, so they had a great time. But it's good to be back. All right. I appreciate Daniel. I told him, I said, I'm, I might need a little bit more time. I know we got choir back, so I want to wrap at seven so everybody can hear, because what we're going to do tonight is we're going to cover the period of the Old Testament we would call the divided kingdom. So if you will, Rob, if you throw the first, that first slide up behind me, uh, I want you to see this on the map. This, this is where we left off two weeks ago, the Uni- or three weeks ago, the United Kingdom. And all of this, by the end of Solomon's reign, all of this is the kingdom of Israel. So this little, this little orange sliver right here, uh, that's what you and I have become familiar with over the last three weeks looking at Elijah. That's the land of Jezebel. Phoenicia, that's where Tyre is right there. Sidon is right there. Uh, and the widow and her little village is right there in between. But this is the size. You can see it. This is Israel at its greatest extent. And, and if you've got your Bibles, well, before we go to Bibles, let me, let me set this up. This is how we're going to do this. Because this is the part of the Old Testament more than any other, where it doesn't matter how much you study it and how much you know, it just gets all sorts of confusing. Because you got First and Second Kings and you got First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles both trace the same history, but they do it in different ways for different purposes, and they were written at different times. And in that, you're going to also hear statements in such and such king, but the, the, what he did was written in the book of the Chronicles and the book of the Kings. Well, those books of the Kings that are mentioned aren't always the same as these first and second Kings. So there's all sorts of ways to get confused. And this is where, once we move into this period, this is where the prophets, as in uh, the prophetic books, Isaiah through Malachi, this is where they come in. And so here's, here's what I want to do to try to make it as logical and unconfusing as possible, is I want to remind us the purpose of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and then we're going to walk through the dividing of the kingdom. We're going to look at the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. So we're going to kind of overlap a little bit, but I think that's the easiest way to do it. So let me remind us, First and Second Kings, originally in the Hebrew, one book, covers a 411-year period. It, ends, it, it picks up at the end of David's reign in 971 B.C., and it goes all the way until 560 B.C. In the, the book of 1 and 2 Kings, specific emphasis is, is placed on the kings as the rulers, the leaders, the shepherds, and the spiritual guides of the people. Uh, initially of the United Kingdom we see behind me, and then into the divided kingdoms. Uh, We see that kings does not hesitate to show the good and the bad. It looks at both. And the primary purpose for that is because kings was most likely written uh, towards the end of the time of Judah when Jeremiah is faithfully calling them out of their idolatry, and it's attempting to expose that. That's in contrast to later on when Chronicles will be written. First Kings and Second Kings, uh, there's, there's symmetry all throughout. First Kings opens with King David. Second Kings closes with King Nebuchadnezzar. 
First Kings opens with Solomon's glory. Second Kings closes with Zedekiah, King Zedekiah's shame. First Kings opens with the temple being built and consecrated. It ends with the temple being violated and destroyed. It begins with blessing for obedience. It ends with judgment for disobedience. It begins with the growth of apostasy. It ends with the consequences of apostasy. It begins with the kingdom dividing. It will end with the kingdoms both being destroyed. It'll show the failure of the kings and the consequences of the king's failure. It'll begin with Elijah's ministry and it'll move to Elisha's ministry at the end of 1 Kings and end of beginning of 2 Kings. We'll go from the Lord's patience to the Lord's judgment. We'll conclude with despair and we'll conclude with Hope. Who, who wrote Kings? Most likely, if you remember, uh, the text is anonymous, meaning the, the actual text doesn't say who wrote it. Like Paul says, I, Paul, write this. Uh, tradition has always held Jeremiah wrote it. There's a lot of reasons for that. We looked at that several years ago. Now, Chronicles, so you understand the purpose of Chronicles, Kings is, is what we would call written from the prophetic perspective. So you're going to see this interplay. Your two big groups of figures are your kings and your prophets. And it's written from the prophetic perspective in terms of we are speaking God's judgment and his, his righteous uh, rule over the idolatry and sin of the people. We are calling the people to repentance. And we are seeing the, both uh, when the people do respond, how God forgives them, restores them. We are also seeing when the people refuse to respond, how the consequences of God's discipline and judgment come upon them. It's written from the prophetic perspective. Chronicles, on the other hand, is written from what we would call the priestly perspective. And you'll notice when you work through Chronicles, specific emphasis is placed on the temple, on worship leaders, on religious services. Uh, it parallels many of the accounts, but in Chronicles, in Chronicles, the focus is not going to be on both the northern and southern kingdom. It's really going to be on the southern kingdom, Judah. Why? Well, because Chronicles is written after the exile, which we'll go there next week. And it's written to the people of God who have come out of exile back into the promised land and who are now struggling, not with idolatry, but with the fact that they are a broken people. They are in a land surrounded by hostile people, and they are struggling with, with returning and restoring proper worship as God commands in the law. So there is emphasis to show them, look at the glory of, of your forefathers. Look at the glory of the past. See it. See what faithful worship looks like and be faithful to restore the temple and restore worship. This is the primary role of Chronicles. And Chronicles is going to trace, going all the way back in the genealogies to Adam and move all the way to David's reign. It's going to look at Solomon's reign. It's going to look at Judah's kings after the division. And it's going to really focus only on the positive things. Because the writer, who many believe to be Ezra, Ezra or Ezra and Nehemiah in a combination, is writing for a different purpose looking at. So both are works of history, both looking at the same period, but from a different, through a different lens and through a different viewpoint for a different purpose. And so for the sake of tonight, I will try to mention where stuff crosses over in both, uh, but, but I'm primarily gonna probably give you references out of Kings when I give you references, just because Kings shows us both the Northern and the Southern kingdom. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, and I hope you do. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings begins with Solomon coming to the throne. He starts off so very well. 
He asks for wisdom. God grants it to him. We see his glory goes throughout the inhabited and, and known uh, majority world at the time. Uh, the temple is dedicated. God glories falls on the temple. But then we see in chapter 11 that Solomon had a desire for many wives. And that might be the most understated understatement of scripture with uh, with the amount of wives and concubines he had. And they're all foreign and they lead him to worship other gods and idolatry enters in. And as a consequence, uh, as a consequence, listen to what it says, 1 Kings eleven nine. 9. Now the Lord was very angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him regarding this thing that he was not to follow other gods. But Solomon did not comply with what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this, since you have not kept my command, my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will certainly tear the kingdom away from you and I will give it to your servant. Now that's an interesting statement. Not your son, your servant. This implies that there's going to be a king who's not of the Davidic line, which last time when we walked through Saul, David, and Solomon, we saw that God made a covenant with David that your, your descendant, David, my covenant with you is because of your heart for me, your descendant will be the descendant who sits on the throne of Israel forever. Now, we obviously know that's the messianic title, the son of David. That's Christ. That's Jesus. So this is interesting. God, what God's saying here when he says, I'm going to give it to your servant, means someone is now going to be king who's not of that line. But this is what he says, verse 12. However, I will not do it in your days. For the sake of your father. Now you talk about a rough statement for Solomon. Solomon, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime because of the unbelievable respect and honor I have for your dad. <laughs> not for you, but for your dad. But I will tear it away from the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I've chosen. So God says a, a non a non Davidic line is going to rise up, be king. He's going to, I'm going to tear the kingdom away during your son's days. But I'm not, in light of my covenant with, with David, I'm not going to tear everything away. I'll, I'll leave a, a tribe along with Judah there. And so that's what we're going to see here. Solomon dies. Uh, Solomon lay with his fathers, verse 43. Then we get to chapter 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem because all Israel came to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard about this, he was living in Egypt for he was still in Egypt when he had fled the presence of King Solomon. They sent word and summoned him and Jeroboam and all the assembly came out. And here's the other preference for tonight. We're going to have to hardly read that many verses because we've got to cover like 17 books tonight. So understand the speed at which we're going to go is not a reflection of how important these things are. It's just, we're trying to just get through a broad overview and, uh, and do that. What you need to see there is here in chapter 12, Jeroboam's going to rise up. He's going to pull 10 of the tribes uh, together and say, hey, you need to reject uh, Solomon's son. You need to reject Rehoboam and we need to be our own kingdom. And with that, uh, Rob, if you'd move to the next slide, the kingdom's going to divide and here's the map of the divided kingdom. So down here, the purple, this is Judah. And by Judah, we mean Ju from this point forward, we're either going to call this Judah or the southern kingdom. That's, that's what that is. And what, what's comprised in here, Jerusalem's right there. Bethlehem's down here. Uh, Sunday, or Sunday, we talked about Elijah going to Beersheba. Here's Beersheba down here. Obviously, boom, wilderness down to Mount Sinai. Um, it's going to be Judah. It's going to be the tribe of Benjamin, which is significant just as a tie when Paul says in Philippians that I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That's one of only two tribes 
that you would actually have the ability to know your lineage from because of what happens to the Northern 10. In addition, the tribe of Benjamin, whereas once they were, they were ostracized and almost eliminated, they're now honored by Paul's day because they're the only tribe that stayed loyal to God's covenant kings. So that's Judah, the Southern kingdom. The Northern kingdom, you'll notice this. You'll hear it called Israel. You'll hear it in scripture called Ephraim. You'll hear it called Samaria or just simply the Northern Kingdom. All four of those names from this point forward refer to, refer to the same area, which is all of this in green. And this is going to be the other 10 tribes. Now, the proviso is you're going to have Levites that are going to be in both just by default because the Levites lived in Levitical cities in each of the tribes. So um, you're going to have that. What Rehoboam's going to do, and I, I mentioned this when we came to Elijah in, in chapter 17, because it says Ahab, as if it was, it was a, a no big deal to commit Jeroboam's sin. Well, what was Jeroboam's sin? What he's going to do, not only does he take away the loyalty from the Davidic king, but in doing that, remember how God has instituted worship. There's festivals, there's sacrifices, the day of atonement. Where are all of those things supposed to happen? Jerusalem. At the temple. Why? Because that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the Holy of Holies is. That's where God's decreed it. Well, if you're no longer loyal to the kingdom in which Jerusalem falls, what are you going to do? And it says very clearly about Jeroboam, and unfortunately, it's not in this, uh, this note. Let me just see if I can I spy it here. Yeah, here we go. Uh, here in chapter 12, listen to what he's going to do. Jeroboam built Shechem, verse 25, in the hill country of Ephraim, lived there. So that's where he's going to put his capital. Jeroboam said in his heart, this is what he says in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David if this people goes to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord. If I allow these 10 tribes to worship God as God has commanded, they're going to disown me and go back to the proper king. So, They will kill me. The king consulted. Listen to what he does. Makes two golden calves. Verse 28. It's too much. It's too big a deal for you, people of Israel, to go to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, plural, Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He sets one of these in Bethel. The other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin. The people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made houses on high places. He appointed priests from the people who were not of Levi. He institutes a feast. He, he, he sets up an altar. So what he basically does is he completely and totally rejects and violates every aspect of how the God in the covenant has instructed Israel to walk. So now we have in, in a weird way, a, an idolatry kind of about the one true God, but obviously a total rejection of him. And this is what happens when the kingdom divides. From this point forward, the kingdom divides. And, and so what we're going to do as we walk through this is we're going to walk through the timeline in the northern kingdom because it's going to come to destruction first. And then we're going to walk through the timeline in the southern kingdom and try to put some things together as we do this. And I got to watch the clock because I'm going to be so tempted to go off on so many incredible things that are in here. But here we go. So 931 BC, 931 BC, the kingdom divides. We now have a northern and a southern kingdom. 
Jeroboam the first, the first king of the northern kingdom, we see him in 1 Kings 11 through 1 Kings 14, verse 20. In his day, Abijah the prophet will, will be ministering. Uh, Jeroboam is going to reign for 22 years. And then uh, Nadab comes to the throne for two years. You see him mentioned in 1 Kings 15 in just three verses. Poor Nadab, he only gets three verses. What a sad day. Uh, and then you see uh, King uh, Basha come to the throne in 909 BC. He reigns for 24 years. We see him in chapter 15, uh, verse 27 through chapter 16, verse 7. In his day, Jehu the prophet will minister. Then we see him, uh, Elah comes to the throne for two years, 1 Kings 16, 6 through 14. Then after him, Zimri comes to the throne in 885 BC, and he reigns a grand total of seven days. He gets a week. What a great, but ironically, the poor guy who gets two years, he gets three verses. The guy who gets a week gets 11. So, um, but here's what's gonna, here's what's gonna happen. There's gonna be a word of judgment on Jeroboam's house. Zimri uh, is going to execute that judgment on the household of Basa. He's gonna take Basa out according to the word through Jehu the prophet. And then Zimri's gonna get taken out by Omri. That name should ring a bell. Uh, if you, if you uh, listen in the sermon, which I hope you do, um, Omri is Ahab's father. And Omri is going to end that line of kings. He's going to begin the Omritic dynasty. He's going to move the capital from Shechem, a politically charged place, to Samaria. And he's going to construct, construct his own his own. Uh, his own capital there. He's going to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. He's going to uh, create some political alliances. Omri's going to kind of pass away. And then there in verse 29 of 1 Kings 16, we meet Ahab. And I'm not going to go super in depth on the next several chapters because we've already done that. Uh, but Ahab's going to come. Uh, we're going to see Ahab goes to the end of First Kings. Uh, Ahab is going to enter into war with Aram, which, let's see, here's, when you hear Aram, so Ahab's reigning in here. This is his land. Here's Aram. Damascus is right there. This is modern-day Syria up here. Uh, if you'll remember Phoenicia, this is the land of Jezebel. Jezebel's going to marry Ahab. They're going to not just walk in the, the false worship of Jeroboam, but they're now going to add to it the idolatrous worship of Baal and Asherah and all of the wickedness that comes with. And understand Jezebel is, is adamant. Jezebel is, you worship Baal alone, and we're going to see her murder prophets, and she's more wicked, definitely wears the pants in that relationship. She's really the one running the show in Israel. Ahab is going to follow her lead. The people of Israel uh, really are what we would call syncretistic. We've used that term before in our worldview stuff. It's when you take a hodgepodge of various things, you're not enough of one thing to be identified. You just take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you meld it all together into your own thing. That's syncretism. That is actually today the predominant worldview of our country is syncretism. The majority of our country, I don't remember the exact stat, I think it was over 80%, does not fall into any category exclusively, but is syncretistic. Well, that's the same thing. Same thing back in, in this time in Israel. So you've got literally Israelites who are going to go bow down to the golden calf in the name of Yahweh, but only after they've, or, or, or before they go offer their sacrifice to Baal for the grain harvest. I mean, realize how wild this day is in terms of 
worship. Judgment is going to be uh, brought against King, uh, King Ahab. It's a great little, in, in 1 Kings 22, uh, this is when King Jehoshaphat is down in Judah. He and Ahab are going to work together to go to battle, and, and Ahab's convincing him, and Jehoshaphat says, hey, actually, let's, let's ask God. Let's ask the Lord. Now, again, the irony, right? We've already seen the whole narrative. Ahab doesn't worship God. He doesn't care about Yahweh, but he also has prophets of Yahweh, supposedly. Oh, okay, yeah, that's Jehoshaphat. Let's, let's ask. And so... All of them come back, say, hey, you should go up and do it. And Jehoshaphat goes, well, well surely there's at least someone else. And, and Ahab goes, yeah, there's, there's someone else, but I don't like him. He always tells me what I don't want to hear. What a terrible thing. So Micaiah comes up, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says, I will speak it. The king said, shall we go up? And uh, he says, go up and succeed. The Lord is over it. And obviously he said it was sarcasm because... Uh, Ahab goes, how many times must I make you swear? Tell me the truth. And so he goes, okay, you want to know the truth? I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord says, these people have no master. Each of them is to return the house. And then the king goes, well, dad gummit Jehoshaphat, I told you he only tells me what I don't want to hear and bad things. And so Micaiah goes on and Micaiah basically says, you're going to fall Ahab. You're going to die in this battle. And, and because of God's judgment against you, and what, this is what Ahab does in verse 26. He says, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say this. This is what the king says. Put this man in prison. Feed him enough bread and water to survive until I return safely. Now, we don't know what happens to Micaiah, but here's a man called on who was faithful to God. And based on the last thing we know, he was thrown in prison to await the king's return who never returned very possible he languished for the rest of his life there in prison because he was faithful to the Lord. And I tell you that to say one of the problems we'll see in some of the prophets is that Israel just believes, well, we're God's people. God's grace abounds. We can do whatever we want because we're his people. It's essentially a health, wealth, prosperity. I belong to God. God will give me whatever I want. It'll be great. All that. That's not how it works. And even more so for us as New Testament believers, we understand that like Christ suffered, so may we very likely suffer. So then, of course, one of my favorite, uh, Ahab, though, is unnerved enough. He dresses, remember, I think we've used this in our worldview stuff. He, he dresses up not as the king, which is actually pretty intelligent. I don't know why, the, you know, it's kind of like back in the day. Who's the general in the American army? Oh, it's the guy in the fancy hat sitting on the horse. Shoot him. Uh, but that's what he does. He dresses up as a random deal. And there's my, my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Shows God, man's free will and God's sovereignty and complete harmony. Look at this. Uh, 1 Kings 22, 34. Now one man, he's nameless because his name doesn't matter, drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. I think I've shared it before. I just have this picture of one random guy in the battlefield, battles raging, and he's like, I got to get a shot off. And just shoots it off. And the arrow doesn't even hit him. It hits him in a, in a joint. And pierces them where it pierces an artery, and Ahab will bleed out and die. And God's judgment is served there at the end of First Kings. New rulers will come to the throne. Uh, Ahaziah will, will come to the throne. Elijah's still around. Uh, but uh, there's also judgment spoken against uh, Jezebel. We'll see Jezebel get her very gory and uh, fitting death there. Um, Ahaziah is going to reign on the throne for two years. Elijah and Elisha are going to minister in that time. Elisha will be, Elijah will be taken to heaven, uh, will be taken to heaven by a chariot of fire. 
Then we're going to see Joram come to the throne, followed by Jehu, followed by Jehoahaz, uh, but followed by Jehoahash, all of whom in their reigns, Elisha is ministering. So as you walk through Kings and you read of Elisha's ministry, it falls in that time. And time doesn't uh, give for us to stop and look at a lot of stuff of, like, of Elijah, like the time the kids made fun of him for being bald and he called a bear out and it ate all of them. So uh, you can keep that one in your pocket when next time you're teaching third grade boys Sunday school. We're going to see Jeroboam II come to the throne in 2 Kings chapter 14. Jeroboam II, this is a key king in, the, in, in terms of our timeline here. He's going to reign for 41 years. Now, to give you contrast, prior to him, the longest reigning king is uh, Jehu at 28 years, followed by Ahab in the first Jeroboam at 22. So 41 years, we've, almost, we've, we've doubled. We've doubled what the reign is. His reign is going to be marked by an unprecedented prosperity. There's going to be economic prosperity throughout the northern kingdom in his reign. Because you'll notice, Rob, go back to the slide before this real quick. Okay, so you see kind of these, these waterways right here. Here's Damascus right here. Do you notice all the territory Israel has? Now go back to that other map, Rob. Here's Damascus. Here's Damascus. Look how their territory shrinks when the kingdom, shrinks when the kingdom divides. Under Jeroboam II, they're going to gain all that territory back. So it's going to be marked by, by, by this time. It's going to be during his reign that the city of Rome is founded. It's going to be in his reign that the first Olympic Games are occurring in Greece. And we know this king because it's in his reign that Jonah the prophet is called by God to go to Nineveh and to speak a word of a call to repentance. And of course, we've spent adequate time on Jonah. So I'll just remind you, Jonah written around 750 BC. And Jonah, we see a, a chapter one, God calls Jonah, Jonah flees at his flight. Uh, God saves the sailors. They worship him. We see Jonah's deliverance through the aquatic large creature. Um, you can debate whether it's a whale or fish. Doesn't matter. It's a large aquatic creature. Maybe it was a dinosaur. Maybe it was Loch Ness Monster. I mean, just whatever could swallow a man. Um, by the way, did anybody see the humpback whale come out of the water and almost capsize the boat the other day? That video made the rounds. That was wild. Um, then we see Jonah get spit up. He repents, spit up. He goes chapter three, half-heartedly preaches in Nineveh. Nineveh repents. Uh, chapter four, he voices his displeasure. But all throughout this, we see God's heart is for the whole world. And God's forgiveness and his, his mercy and his desire to save is for even the worst of sinners. We see that God will work in spite of his disobedient sinner. And we see a contrast. Here's a prophet of God who's less responsive to God than the enemies of God's people. And this is in the time that Jonah is written. It's also in the time, in this frame, Jeroboam II, where Amos the prophet ministers. Amos is a contemporary of Jonah. So, and what I'm going to do as we walk through this, when I mention a prophet that writes a book, we're going to pause the timeline, and I'll give you kind of a brief overview of that prophet's book, and then we'll come back. So Amos, his name means burden bearer. Amos is interesting because he was a shepherd and, and was wealthy as a herdsman. Um, there's unusual circumstances behind his, 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 his calling uh, because a oh, Amos is obedient to his calling. There's an urgency to his message, but to go about it, he has to leave his business. He has to give his business up. And it's ironic that the Lord calls a man who knew the failures of the prosperous herders and farmers in Judah to go prophesy against the northern kingdom where there was rampant abuse of wealth and prosperity. Because under Jeroboam's reign, as economic prosperity arises, we see spiritual apathy, further moral decline, idol worship is common. 
Social injustice runs wild where the rich and the powerful are exploiting, abusing, and denying justful wages and justful labor to those who work for them. And all the while, the Israelites believe God is obligated to protect us no matter what we do because we're his covenant people. God's grace abounds. And they failed to realize that God's grace does abound, but God will not allow his people to walk in sin, and he takes sin seriously. And so what Amos, the bulk of Amos' message is, God is not going to protect you, Israel. In fact, if you persist in your way, God will break you. And interestingly enough, this is backed up by archaeology, uh, that two years after Amos' prophecy, the Lord sent an earthquake that devastated the land. There's, there's clear markers of it. So Amos chapters 1 through 2, uh, eight oracles of judgment against the nations. We see that God's justice isn't just for his own people, it's for all people. We see chapters 3 through 6, three sermons of judgment coming against Israel. Uh, they're not so much saying this has to happen, but if you don't repent, this is what will happen. Lack of food, drought, blight and mildew on crops, locust invasion to the destruction of crops, pestilence and disease, military defeat, exile. There's a Then in chapters uh, 7 through the first half of 9, we see five visions of the Lord's coming. And there is this statement. It's one of the things that was pointed out in my uh, Old Testament survey class in college. These five warnings through visions... And it says this in, in Amos chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, God showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line. A plumb line was a string with a, with a heavy weight on the other end, and it was used to dangle against a wall. And based on how it lay or fell, it would show how straight and true that wall was. So when God says, I, I've, he sees him holding a plumb line, the Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Meaning I'm about to check how, how righteously my people are walking. I'm going to hold the plumb line to see. And the implication being they're not walking well. But the book, like many of the prophets, where there's these messages of destruction, this intensity of God's judgment on sin, the, the prophecy of Amos and the book of Amos will end with hope. Because God's going to promise a restoration that this is not, that destruction and judgment is not final, but that he will restore the Davidic dynasty. Remember, this is to the northern kingdom. These are the people who rejected the Davidic dynasty. He's going to restore the Davidic dynasty. He's going to make Israel victorious over their enemies. He'll bring back the agricultural. There will be a future prosperity, a permanent settlement in the land. He's going to bring back the kingdom to one because he is a God who is great and restorative. It's also going to be in this... Uh, Sorry, so this is all in the reign of Jeroboam II. Following Jeroboam II, you're going to have the king Zechariah, who's going to reign for six months. But he still gets more verses than the guy who reigned for two years. Uh, so, so, so does the guy after him who only reigned for one month. Um, it's going to be, so you got Zechariah followed by Shal, uh, Shalom, followed by Menaniah, who reigns 10 years, followed by Pekahiah, who reigns for two years, followed by Pekah, who reigns for 20 years, followed by Hosea, who's going to reign for nine years. In all of those kings, and that, that takes you First uh, Kings chapter four or Second Kings chapter fourteen, and runs you through Second Kings chapter seventeen, and we'll see that here in a second. All of those kings, there is a man by the name of Hosea, who is prophesying. 
Hosea's ministry is going to take place over a period of uh, 30 to 40 years, 35 to 40 years. In his time, we're going to see the same, the same kind of religious syncretism where the people of God are bowing to the idols while also giving lip service to God. On the social level, there, there is going to be such an accumulation of wealth that there will be a massive disparity between the haves and the have-nots, the powerful and the unpowerful, the rich and the poor. There will be a climate of injustice, again, is just like in Jonah's day, uh, where the rich use their power and influence to take advantage of the poor. Selfishness, greed, the pursuit of pleasure are going to be what characterize Israelite society rather than love for the Lord and love for one's neighbor, which going back to the covenant and, and Deuteronomy are the two greatest commandments. And the second one flows out of the first. It's going to be in his time that he's going to write and, and, and he's going to use, God's going to call him there in chapter one. Now, let me just clarify this, okay? Scripture is clear when you go to the New Testament if you are saved by grace through faith and in Christ, you have no business pursuing a romantic relationship with someone who is not also saved by grace through faith. Missionary dating, it is not permissible in Scripture. If you are saved, you don't go into a relationship with someone who's not saved. And I have infinite examples of people who have heard that, rejected that warning, and now, shocker, aren't walking with the Lord. But we are going to see something here where God calls Hosea in chapter 1 to take a woman who is a prostitute as his wife. That cannot be used as a justification for missionary dating because you're talking about a prophet. And if you're going to use that as a justification for missionary dating, then you should also say that the pastor should lay butt naked on the stage for three years like other prophets. And we wouldn't dare do that. <laughs> and any pastor who did that ought to be fired and thrown in the loony bin. So Hosea 1, God's going to call Hosea to take Gomer, this prostitute, as a wife. And here's what he's going to say. Verse 2, go take for yourself a wife inclined to infidelity and children of infidelity, for the land commits flagrant infidelity, abandoning the Lord. So Hosea goes, takes Gomer as his wife. She conceives and bore him a son. The Lord says, name him Jezreel. For just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Conceived again, gave birth to a daughter. The Lord said, name her uh, lo uh, Rahama, which means not having obtained mercy, for I will no longer take pity on the house of Israel that I would, that I would forgive them, but I will take pity on the house of Judah and save them. Uh, and then he's going to have another son named Laami, which means not my people, because you are not my people and I am not your God. Hosea starts off with as harsh of words towards the people of God as you can get. And Hosea is filled with intense imagery. It is filled with sexual imagery because at the heart of what was going on in Israel was massive sexual immorality as part of their pagan worship. Uh, and, and, and this goes on. But in the midst of this, let's also not lose sight. Listen to, let me just, I'm just going to read some of chapter two and, and then we'll keep trucking. Uh, Say to your brothers, Ami, and your sisters, Ramah, dispute with your mother, dispute, because she is not my wife, I am not her husband. 
But she must remove her infidelity from her face, her adultery uh, from her chest. Otherwise, I will strip her naked. I will expose her as the day when she was born. I will make her like a wilderness. I will make her like desert land and put her deserts with thirst. I will take no pity on her children because they are children of infidelity. For their mother has committed prostitution. She who has conceived has acted shamefully. She has said, I will go after my lovers, those who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. So God said, behold, I will obstruct her way with thorns. I will build a stone wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lover. She will not reach them. She will seek them. She will not find them. Now this point, again, when you hear God's word, God takes all sin serious. From the white lie to the marital affair to the defrauding a person of their rightful wages, to cold blood and murder. God takes all sin serious. And the consequences of sin are exactly what Romans says, death. And we see precursors to that here, but this side of heaven, we must not forget that all of God's acting and judging Israel's sin and bringing discipline is never because he's just hacked off and wants them to feel bad. It's to bring them back. I'm going to wall this. Why? Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband for it, is not, for it was better for me then than now. And you drop down in chapter two and listen to how God speaks. This is at a time when the northern kingdom has totally rejected. This is towards the end of the, of the, of the, of the existence of the northern kingdom. There is never a God-honoring king in the northern kingdom, never one. But even then, listen to how God speaks about his heart to restore his people. Therefore, behold, I am going to persuade her. Your Bible might say, I am going to woo her. I'm going to bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Accor is a door of hope and she will respond as in the days of her youth and the days when she came out from the land of Egypt. It will be on that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they will no longer be mentioned by their names. On that day, I'll make a covenant for them. Drops down, I will betroth you forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and favor and compassion. Come on that day that I will respond. I mean, is this not just the beautiful heart of God? That God's heart, even in the midst of his, not just people rebelling against him, but his people who know better. And his heart says, I will absolutely bring destruction because it's the only way to wake you up, but, you, but I will woo you back. And this is, man, Hosea is an, is an incredible, incredible picture of God's justice, but also of his love. Uh, chapters 4 through 14, you're going to see judgment for Israel's sin, judgment resulting in Israel's ruin, and judgment turning into restoration. And when we get to 2 Kings chapter 17, when we get to 2 Kings chapter 17, it's going to say this, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Allah, has become king over Israel and Samaria, reigned for nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, not only as the kings of Israel who preceded him, or, or not only not as the kings of Israel who preceded him. Uh, Shalmanseer, the king of Assyria, now remember Assyria, that's Nineveh, that's the, the, the nation of Nineveh. The king of Assyria marched against him, and Hosea, 
So different than the kings that preceded him, Oshea is under his reign is attacked by Assyria and Oshea committed to become his servant and pay him tribute. So rather than repenting for sin and returning to the Lord, we are now paying tribute to a foreign nation. But the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by, by Hosea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and they brought a tribute to the king of Assyria. Uh, and so the king of Assyria arrested him, confined him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the entire land. He went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He led the people of Israel into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halah, on Habor, on the river Gazan, and in the cities of the Medes. If you'd go, Ted, or sorry, not Ted, Ted's over here. Uh, Rob, if you'd go to the next slide, uh, go to the next one. And go one more. Here we go. This is the Assyrian Empire at the height of its power. Here, hey, sweetie. Uh, here's Nineveh over here. Here's, here's Israel, that little purple spot. And look how small Israel has shrunk down. Judah's still hanging on fairly the same, but here, look at Israel. Now listen to this. Now this, is, this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they feared other gods. They followed the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from the sons of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. And the sons of Israel did things secretly against the Lord their God, which were not right. Moreover, they built for themselves high places, those are places of pagan worship, in their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves memorial stones and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. The asherim are like totem poles of worship to the mistress of Baal. Uh, there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did that the Lord had taken into exile before them. And they did these evil things provoking the Lord. Notice that. It's not, and the Lord was provoked and they did these evil things. They did these evil things and they provoked the Lord. God's judgment never precedes our sinfulness. Our sinfulness is what brings about God's judgment. This was said, they served idols, verse 12, uh, concern, which the Lord had said, you should not do this thing. Verse 13, yet in spite of all this sin, the Lord warned, warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, turn back from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law, which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but they stiffened their necks like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord, their God. They were, and that's referring back to that generation that first came out of Egypt who saw God move in might and power, who saw God deliver the, and who refused to ever believe God at his word. And instead of the God who parted the sea, instead of the God who descended in cloud and fire on the mountain, they said, Aaron, make us golden cows. Make us a golden cow. We're going to worship that. 
stiff-necked. They rejected his statutes, his covenant, which he made with their fathers, his warnings, which he gave him. They followed their idols. They became empty. They followed the nations that surrounded them about which the Lord had commanded them not to do as they did. And they abandoned the commandments of the Lord their God. They made for themselves metal images, two calves. They made an Asherah and worshiped the heavenly lights, meaning they, they made gods out of the stars and the planets. They served Baal. Then they made, listen to this, then they made their sons and daughters pass through the fire. Maybe you translate that. Then they sacrificed their kids to their idols. Then they practiced divination, sorcery, magic, and interpreting omens, and they gave themselves over to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them from his sight. No one was left except the tribe of Judah. Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God either, but they followed the customs which Israel introduced to them. So the Lord rejected the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and handed them over to plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the, the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and misled them into great sin. And the sons of Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed. They did not desist from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight, just as he had spoken through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel went into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Now read all of that long chunk so we understand the kingdom has split. And as with all prophecy, there's always this interesting interplay. God never forces people to sin, but God who exists outside of time, who creates time, who sees past, present, future, all right now before him, God whose name is I am, not I was, not I will be, I am who I am. This God looks down, he sees, he knows what people will do, he calls it out, he declares from days past what will come to be, what will happen. He comes back to Solomon, he says, Solomon, you have defied my commandments, you have brought idolatry into the land, you as the leader of the people spiritually have have bowed down and you're leading them to do this. And so in your son's day, I will rip the kingdom. I will bring judgment there, but I will, my means of bringing that judgment will be by the own free will actions of individuals who are rejecting Jeroboam, who rises up, who leads the people to worship in false. And it just goes downhill from there. Now we're not for the sake of time. We're not going to look at Judah. We'll save that for next week. But what you're going to notice with Judah, because it makes this statement, Judah's going to have cycles. Judah's going to have some good kings. Judah's going to have some horrible kings. And there's going to be interplay between the kings of Israel and Judah. And you heard the statement, not only Israel, have you rejected everything I've said, but Judah's disobedience is because you may encourage them to do it. And so I am bringing justice. And you see the things that he mentions the worshiping of idols, the offering of children to idols, the engagement with dark magic, black magic with sorcery and omens, the worship of the heavenly lights is just a holistic and total rejection of the Lord. And church family, you and I need to understand today when we read this, 
our first way of reading through these stories should not be, wow, what a description of the world around us. These aren't the nations. These are the people of God. The first place we got to go and check ourselves is, oh my goodness, as a child of God, am I walking in the ways of Israel? The people of God were to be God's light to the world. Yet the people of God, did you catch what it says? You walked in the customs of the other nations. Remember what the people said? God, we want a king, not because we think it'd be a better leadership structure, not because, because our, our priests are, are junk. We want a king because we want to be like everybody else. And church family, I fear that one of the reasons we find ourselves in a place that we are in, and, and, and I'm, not hard, I'm not taking a shot at American Christianity, I'm just speaking about what I know firsthand. Please hear that. I don't know Australian Christianity firsthand. I've never been there. I don't even know that I know. I can take that back. I do know someone from Australia. Worked with him on church staff, and he used to be on the deadly catch boats up in Alaska. So that's not true. I should have picked another country. But I fear when I look around at all different things, I see church leaders that pull our ministry strategies, not from the word of God, but from Microsoft and Disney and their corporate models. I see church, churches and seminaries and places that will have a pastor or a, 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 another staff member or a professor who walks morally righteous, who's been faithful in their job. Their only strike is they're not the person the new leader wants in the role and they get fired. Is that not the same kind of thing the rich and powerful were doing in Israel to those defrauding them of their righteous wages. We say, well, we don't offer our children as sacrifices. Well, maybe not as the people of God. Maybe so. Look at how the, how the conversation around the fallout of Roe versus Wade has been inside of the church. And if you're not familiar with what I mean, there's very large spectrums of the evangelical church that can't actually say the fall of Roe versus Wade is a good thing. But let's not even go there. Let's just go to this. Mom and dad whose idol is success. And my child, Dad Gummit, will be successful. He will take every AP class. He will play on that tournament team. When that child has a moment with Christ where they recognize, I have no time to follow Jesus and be faithful because my life is, is run from sun up to sundown by all these things. And they go to mom and dad and say, mom and dad, God's really touched my life. And, and I really feel like I need to pull out of these two tournament teams in volleyball. And mom and dad say, sorry, we won't let you pull out. We put too much money in that. You stick it out. You're telling me we don't sacrifice our kids to idols? Absolutely, we sacrifice kids to our idols. Magic, divination, omens, superstitions, astrologies, horoscopes. And just like the people of Israel, we have the word of God standing as a prophetic witness 24-7. And unlike the people of Israel, if we're God's people today, it is because God himself, the Holy Spirit, lives within. We're not just hearing the word of God from without, but we are to be convicted within. Yet we find so many ways to excuse everything I've just described. Well, God wants this place to be successful. We need to have the very best people. I just can't lead this person. We got to bring this person in. 
well, but I want my kid to have the very best life. So we better make sure to check all these boxes. Just as a side note, part of the reason I harp on that is because as a youth pastor, teenagers are jacked up. I'm not excusing their own stupidity. I got plenty of stories. But 70% of the problems I encountered in youth ministry weren't the teenagers, it was their parents. And when I got kids who say, yeah, my dad's a deacon, I've never seen him read his Bible. That's a frightening statement. And the example of students who've gone to their parents after being convicted about how busy they are with all these other things and that that's an idol in their life and they need to back out. I'm not making that up. That's real stories that both I've encountered and my youth pastor encountered with my friends. We want our kids to be witnesses. You don't want your kid to be a witness on five different tournament baseball teams. That's about your plans for their life and your belief that they're gonna somehow be the point oh 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 one percent that makes it to the pros. Now, not trying to be harsh, but we need to be clear today, church family. God takes our sin serious. Not only does he take our sin serious, but our sin, when we refuse to repent from it, has deadly consequences, not just for our relationship with the Lord, but for those that God has placed in our circle whether that be spouses, children, family members, co-workers, church family, a little leaven rottens the whole dough. But also hear this as we see. In the midst of their sin, God sent them messengers. God called them to repentance. In the midst of their sin, even handing them over to destruction, God's words to Hosea are, I will bring them back. I will woo them back, which is part of why I think when you come to Revelation, what's the deal with the 144,000 in Israel? It's because God made a covenant to the nation of Israel. He said, I will be your God and I will not abandon you. And there is coming a moment where there will be a massive turning of Jewish people to the Lord. Because God is faithful to his word. He is gracious and abounding in, in compassion because just as serious as God takes his judgment, he takes his forgiveness and grace. And it delights God to see people come. By the way, that whole section we looked at with Israel, that's over 200 years that God faithfully called people who never once sought him to return to himself before he allowed the hammer of, of pure judgment to fall. We have a faithful and compassionate God. May that woo our hearts to him. So we're gonna stop with the Northern Kingdom We'll pick up with Judah next week because there's like five times as many kings in books to deal with and prophets. And um, we'll pick up there. So grateful to have you tonight, church family. I hope, I just hope when we walk through and big picture these levels of scripture that it just excites you and excites you to maybe pick up and read in places you haven't read in a while or maybe you're scared to or where does stuff fall? Or maybe as you're reading through Kings, now you know where the prophets fall, go read through that part and then jump over to that prophet and read what they're saying. It'll help just bring it even more alive to you. Uh, we'll see you Sunday. Excited for Sunday. We're diving into the book of James. So be excited. We're going to move to the New Testament for a little bit and, and kick it off with a bang about counting uh, pure joy. By the way, if you see him, you already saw him once tonight, but if you see him again, Daniel Reclue, our precious music minister, he's got a birthday tomorrow. So please let him know you love him 
And uh, even if it's not tonight, let them know Sunday. Let them know. Shoot them around a text tomorrow. Uh, come by the office and, and poke your head in. And uh, actually, I don't know. I don't know if he's going to, I don't know if he has the day off tomorrow or not. He hadn't told me. So um, anyways, love you, church family. And uh, man, may we seek the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here. And God, the reality is when we work our way through Kings and Chronicles, especially First and Second Kings, when we see what goes on with your people in the Old Testament, God, when we read the prophets, God, it is tough. And Lord, it should be, because the reality is for any one of us in this room, there is a tendency when we fall into sin to be blind to it because we desire it and we're not being honest about it. There's a tendency to dig our feet in and to justify it. And oh Lord, that we would be people that if we blindly or willingly fall into sin, that we would be quick to remember who you are. That seated at your table, we're not seated there because you judged us. We're seated there because you judged Christ on our behalf. And in your grace and in your love and in your mercy, when we cried out, you saved us and you seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. May we remember that. May we turn from looking at the sin on the floor. May we gaze full in your face and say, Lord, I'm so sorry that I got distracted. You are who you are, Lord. May we be quick to repent. And God, may we not just be quick to repent. May we be quick to know your grace, your mercy, and the forgiveness that you've already given us, that it's true in Christ, so that when we go into this world who doesn't know better, we would display the glory of your holy splendor and tell them of you who would give them life and hope, who would wash them clean in grace and forgiveness. Lord, open doors and may you do a work adding to our number as a church family, those who right now do not know you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.